Leave the coffee for me. I, only I would be so um, the reading, the gospel reading for this morning is uh, taken from the gospel of John chapter 6, verses 50, 58 through 69. Oh, I see. I have, I have a verse or two back. Um, this is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said all these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Now, beginning verse 60 here. When many of the disciples heard this, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is the gospel of our Lord. Well, um, I do want to say, uh, while I have opportunity, (laughs) I do appreciate that, Josh. Um, uh, just, you know, this, of course, whole series called Living Gratefully here, how, how grateful I am. Uh, grateful for, for Josh, for Connor. I Just even having the sound going, grateful for Sammy and for Carol. Thank you for the opportunity here to preach. It's always kind of a, a nice thing. So um, just, just grateful, grateful for uh, everybody who came today to the baptism. Um, I just, I feel, I feel that immensely as I've been up here. And, and it is appropriate with this series. We've been going through the John chapter 6 in particular, looking at Jesus' teaching on communion. We kind of have hard, a couple times returned to the idea that that ancient word Eucharist comes from the Greek Eucharisteo, meaning I give thanks. And so what we've done here these past five weeks, you look at it, the, the chapter kind of opens, Jesus feeding the 5,000. We kind of use this image of Folsom Lake as the way that I oftentimes at least feel in my life that my reservoir has been drained completely. And it's right and precisely there that Jesus shows up and is able to do this thing and fill us once again for all the things that we face on a day-to-day basis. After that, Pastor Jeff here, oh, I thought I had it. Maybe I don't. There, oh, shoot. I was so close, so close. Can you get me back there, Josh? Thank you. Pastor Jeff talked about how Christ takes as he says, I am the bread of heaven. And he starts trying to, I want you guys to see John 6. It's been this steady progression, this deepening of faith at the same time, helping to lift us to the sum and the summit of Christian life here. And so taking us beyond just that moment of where Jesus feeds the 5,000 to this image of him being the bread from heaven, from something that comes, the grasses of the field that are here today and gone tomorrow to something that can be with us enduring 
at long last, encouraging us to live as though that multiplication of the loaves and the fishes may happen at any moment in our lives. And then the next week there, we just kind of talked about how that encourages us to have the very same mindset of Christ, which he shows in his life, not considering himself, but humbling himself, being obedient to becoming a person and even to death on a cross and using that as the basis for how we think through our life. And then Pastor Jeff last week talking a little bit, man, this may be running out of battery. Josh, can you just advance for me? I promise there's not a lot here. But last week, gee, last week, Pastor Jeff kind of taking us and saying that if there's any place where we want to go to follow Christ, to be with him as his early disciples, he has promised now to be here amongst the church at his table. That what we do is, and what Christ invites us here in this moment, is to be present alongside of and with him. And so we get to this final, I'm going to, oh, that's great. I know what I'm doing here. We get to this final moment, and this is, again, it's kind of the culmination. This is the apex, the climax of John 6 that draws everything together. Christ here is going to invite us into the freedom that he alone can provide. Um, Josh, can you go to the next one? I grew up in um, southwestern Michigan. I think I've mentioned that from up here before. And what you can see, it's still a little bit in the Corn Belt, uh, at least the area that I lived in. It was all cornfields between where I lived and where we went to school. And one of the big things for those of you who have ever been around corn, at least corn that's grown on a commercial level, is you know that it's hybridized. And it's hybridized because you get such higher yields, it's disease resistant, it's a very, very beneficial thing. So what you have to do, because corn is, the female is the, the silk strands, if you guys, you know, when you get an ear of corn, all those silk strands, that's the, the female part. And then the male part is what's called, it's the tassel, it's the part on top. And so if you're going to hybridize corn, if you're going to do something where you have uh, these two varieties that you're cross-pollinating, you can see the panels that they're planted in there. Uh, just one back there, I'll, we're good, thank you. Uh, the panels that they're planted in, you have the four rows of what it's going to be, the corn that's all detasseled, and then you have the tassels for the male rows there. That's, those, that's how it's being hybridized. So they've never invented machines that can perfectly do all the detasseling. So lo and behold, people end up doing it oftentimes with corn. And before I moved out here when I was 13, they allow you to start detasseling when you're 12 years old. So I had two summers of experiencing detasseling. What you do with detasseling, Josh, that's the next one, is that little tractor there, you can see that it has these long arms, and then there are buckets. That's what we would call them, at least. They're these little platforms that extend down. And what you do is you get in with one other person in these buckets, and you go down and through the rows, and you make sure all the tassels are pulled off the corn. It's a very, very simple process, which is why you can have 12 and 13-year-olds do it. As you can imagine, though, it's a very repetitive process. I had a lot of time to think. We would go, they would, of course, all of us are pretty young, and they would get us, would come get us on a school bus, actually, at 5 in the morning. And you're all, you're actually, because the corn is so wet, you wear rain gear. I would still always end up soaked from head to foot. I would get back sometimes from the longer days. You know how your feet, I don't think I've ever seen my feet that, where, the, where your skin is just wet and then it's all wrinkly. It was on a level I've never seen except for when I was detasseling. But when we would go out there, you're kind of going through it, and like I said, your job is just basically to pull these tassels off. So you go plant by plant by plant by row by row, and you keep doing it. Oftentimes, if, uh, my mom loved 
I Love Lucy growing up, and one of the most iconic scenes is the chocolate factory scene. You guys know what I'm talking about here? That's what it felt like detasseling. They would say, speed it up, and the tractor would start to go faster and faster. And so you're trying to keep up, desperately going. And what you do is, if you got behind in your row, you talk to your partner and say, here, you do both rows for a minute. I'm going to run back and collect the, you know, all the leftover ones. And then you try to jump back in the bucket, and nobody would be the wiser for it. But I never felt so much, I don't think in my life, like I was an extension of the machine that I was riding on than when I was detasseling. It's not the only time I feel like I've ever felt that kind of automated or I've just been reduced to a, a unit of work production. There are days now, much later, of course, it's not detasseling corn, where I feel like I have a similar experience. Where I wake up, I get breakfast ready, I eat breakfast, I do the dishes, I get ready, I go here, do the paperwork, whatever, go to the meetings that I have to go to, have the same conversations with 30 different people. I get in my car, I go home, you have to run errands, then you gotta go ahead, you gotta get dinner ready, eat dinner, do the dishes, you think you're done doing dishes, no, there's more dishes, I have a couple other things I didn't do here, and then you go ahead and you go to sleep, and then you wake up, and then you eat breakfast, and you do it all again. Feels like some version of Groundhog Day. Or, Sammy, if I could give you my, here's, here's you, want to, you want your version of your best life now. You go to school, right, so you can get good grades, so you can go to college, so you can get a good job, so you can get a nice house, so you can get married and have a family, so you can retire and be financially independent, so you can die without having to inconvenience anybody too much. Is that, that's the dream, that's the vision, right? Did I just nail it? It can seem sometimes like just everything is an endless repetition, a series of tasks. And I'm convinced that as Christ brings us to this moment, this culmination of John 6, this is the freedom. This is the freedom that he really wants us to have in our life. Of course, the big question becomes, what ultimately is freedom? I'd be tempted from the culture to think that the best definition of freedom is... To be able to do what I want, when I want, and how I want to do it. What I want, when I want, and how I want to do it. But what Jesus wants us to see here is that that's only part of the picture. If art was holding me in a suplex position on the ground, I'm certainly not very free to do what I want then. So it's good that you don't restrict me in that way. But there's something more to this. I was thinking of People I could pick on, I've already picked on you, Sammy, so why not go to Bell, our star volleyball setter? Um, this would work for any athletic context, though. The, the wonderful thing, I think, about sports is that they are kind of this microcosm of our world. There is a sort of organized chaos of it. They're unpredictable, which is why we all end up watching them, at least if we do watch them. You don't know exactly how it's going to go, but there's an order to it. In the same way, with our world, the sun rises, we have the seasons, there's a certain predictability, but within that, there's some freedom. And why Belle and her teammates go, they have this wonderful commitment, they practice and they do the same kinds of, you know, with, they have to practice the sets and the spiking, working together as a team is so that when they're on the court in a real game situation, which has all the unpredictability, they have the freedom because 
of all the ways that they've made in an effortless, second nature way, the habits that they've practiced and committed to, they have the freedom to be able to respond to the game in real time. They can work together as the ball comes over this way and that way and that way and get it back over the net again, what their intended purpose is and why they practice so long. If you get me on the same volleyball court with their team and I sub in, what, I'm their, I'm their libero? Yeah? Something like that? All I can do is windmill my arms like I'm in a mosh pit and probably hit Bell in the face. I am the least free person there. It would be the same thing if Al and Katie were to say about Timothy, you know, we're never going to speak to Timothy because we want him to be his most free and express himself in whatever noises he wants to. If Timothy didn't learn to speak any language, would he be more free or less free? Right? The ability, anybody who's ever had a difficulty, knowing, a difficulty speaking knows how limiting it is. And so by that commitment to have Timothy learn their language, our this primary like English, um, it, it gives him a certain freedom to be able to one day say the words, I love you and thank you, which is some of the height of what it means to be human. For the gospel, the, the sense of what freedom ultimately lies in is, I would suggest to you, the ability of something to do the thing that it was intended or designed to do. And for us, of course, it has a very strong commitment to this is what we as human beings are made for. So what would you imagine, at least for Pastor Cody, oftentimes end up being the, the most, could you switch for me? What do, you, what do you imagine for Pastor Cody oftentimes ends up being the, the worst tyrant, the greatest enemy that I face in being free according to that definition? Right? Alcohol, cigars, and gambling. Didn't you guys know that's what? I just want to picture the vices there. Um, it's not those things. But often, and this is what they knew in antiquity, it's the worst enemy, the worst tyrant that will, any of us will ever face in our lives will be ourselves. They would talk about it in the ancient world as our appetites, our desires, right? They can be so misguided and unchecked and uninhibited, they end up being the thing that ends up taking us over, right? Who are the people in our culture that sometimes almost end up being worshipped close to um, that have the least, the, what we would consider to be in part because of this, they have the greatest freedom, they can do what they want, when they want, how they want to do it, right? It's the celebrities, the lifestyles of the rich and famous, and what do we oftentimes find out about their lives? Right? Yeah. That you see that oftentimes they end up being, and often it'll come out later on, but they're often in and out of rehab. Why? Because addictions have taken over seize control of their lives. It's a live issue here, and the gospel would not have us be subjected to the tyranny of those desires that are unchecked in us that prevent us or make us sort of keep into this cycle of Groundhog Day, of just living our lives from one moment to the next, doing the next thing that seems that we have to do so that we can do the next thing so that we can do the next thing so that we can do the next thing. It's part of the reason that we make and we undertake commitments these things that help purify and perfect our desires, to desire the things that we want to do and rightly. That's why if you want to have a good relationship with somebody, you make a commitment, right, to spend time with them. 
If you want to have a good rest, you commit to going to bed at the same time. If you want to feel well throughout the day, you'll commit to having some sort of healthy diet, right? Maybe put vegetables in there every single day. And what Jesus here is showing us and giving us is that the culmination, the climax of our lives is making a commitment to God. This is the freedom that Christ offers as he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. We become like the very one of whom we partake. And of course, this is what's so scandalizing. I did it. This is what's so scandalizing. This is what's hard about Jesus' teaching here. Because we know that if we are to commit not just an abstract and a principled way to Jesus, but to Jesus himself, his very life, the son of man who had no place to lay his head, who didn't necessarily know where his next meal was coming from, who was hunted by his own enemies and shunned by his hometown. And we are like him. That seems like it's a, loss, a life that has the greatest risk of hardship, of risk, of loss, of failure. Jesus here shows us in John at the very beginning of it that God will indeed supply our daily bread. But that dependence is still day by day. There is a kind of renunciation always in following Christ. This is something that you see in Peter and Andrew when Jesus calls them when he speaks to the rich man. I think a lot, I know this is probably, if you guys want to learn a little, a little, a little about my history, but there's a moment, my parents growing up had um, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I don't think I ever saw the other two, the Temple of Doom. I don't think my mom, I think she was a little maybe unnerved by the earlier ones, but we had that one, and that was one movie that I had seen, I think it's PG-13, I saw it way before it was 13. Um, and I'd probably seen it a dozen times. In that film, you know, you have Indiana Jones, they're searching for the Holy Grail. Uh, Nazis, of course, are present throughout all this. And you get to the end of it, they found the grail, and uh, Elsa Schneider, who's kind of uh, Indiana Jones's conflicted, Nazi-sympathizing art historian love interest, <laughs> she's tried to take the grail beyond the seal, and so the, you know, the, the floor opens, it cracks, the Holy Grail falls into the, there's this abyss there, but it's on a ledge. And so Elsa, at the very end, if you've ever seen this, she's trying to reach toward it, and Indiana Jones is begging her. You know, I need both your hands. Of course, ultimately, she's, she's just so drawn. She just is so close to the grail, she can't let it go. And so she drops and she falls into the chasm. Uh, as it would turn out, just a moment later, we see this situation. You get deja vu. Indiana Jones is hanging from the edge of the ledge there. And Sean Connery, who's playing his father, Henry Jones, now has him. Same, same, same sort of, he's, he's grasping him. And Indiana Jones, hanging over the chasm, He's trying to reach out and get the grail, right? His like middle finger is like just tapping it. And this is the moment that I always think of, I guess, for whatever reason. Um, I guess it stayed with me. I'm sure that Spielberg and Lucas would be surprised this has been so formative in my life. But as Indiana Jones is reaching and his father, kind of part of it, this is why it's sort of poignant in the movie, is his father is a person who's a medieval literature professor and he's studied the grail all his life. And so the grail is right there. Indiana Jones is reaching for it. Sean Connery turns to him, and he says to him in this, it's just, it's kind of half-pleading, but just this no-nonsense way. He says, Indy, let it go. Indy, let it go. And I always imagine in my life, when it comes to these moments, that there's kind of me hanging off that ledge there in the chasm, and it's 
course, Christ who's holding me in this moment. And there's just something that, like the Holy Grail, I absolutely need. I need it. It's usually not a material thing. I'm sure it's something that I, I just feel like I need it for that sense of security, for that sense of peace of mind. And this is how I know that God speaks through all things, because I hear Sean Connery's voice somewhere in the back of my head saying, let it go. If we're willing to renounce, if we're willing to renounce, I believe part of the beauty that we see in the scriptures is that there is a freedom from all the false senses of security that we can try to rely on that ultimately don't work. The crowds end up being scandalized and offended by Jesus here. But what do you see when you look at Christ and the apostles throughout the Gospels? It's everybody else, of course, that are running around all the, on, on Jesus and his 12, and they're following all these pre-recorded scripts to their lives, right? It's the whole same, got to go to, gotta go to school so I can get good grades, so I can go to college, so I can marry, so that I can retire, that kind of script. And oftentimes, they only come to Jesus for one of two things. Either there's something that's happened that's disrupted the script, and they got to get back to the script. So Jesus needs to fix it, or Jesus himself is disrupting the script, and so they got to get rid of him. But it's, it's Jesus and his, it's unmistakable as you go through that they're the ones throughout the entirety of the gospel that are available, right? They're free to bring God's healing into people's lives. They're free to be able to worship. They're free to be able to pray. Interestingly, it's only Christ and the apostles that are really able to celebrate the coming of God's kingdom in him throughout the entire time to lead these lives of joy and peace, even as they're hunted, even as they face very hard circumstances. And it's their commitment to following God that frees them to live this life. You know, the secret, I believe, of John 6, I think that's culmination, the summit of it, is to be able to commit to doing the very things that nobody would expect you to do. A free choice is ultimately free because it is unexpected, it's surprising, and it is the one that nobody ever saw coming. Right? This is the story of creation and of God's love for creation. God doesn't need me. God is already everything I could ever be at any moment. God nevertheless created me, and God made you as well and loves us eternally. And what Christ teaches us here is that precisely when it doesn't align with the world, with everything we want about ourselves, this is the moment when we commit to Jesus, when it helps keep us free. It's the sort of person who, even undergoing financial duress, continues to give. It's the sort of person who, when they're wronged, they do the favor for the person that did them the wronging. It's the sort of person who, when they're tired, they do the chore that somebody else didn't get done. Right? Nobody could have predicted that. So we make commitments to Christ to be in his presence, to worship here together, to learn the scriptures and to pray to be able to comfort each other, to lift each other's spirits. Because we know that as Christ invites us to do these things, this is what is truly freeing in our lives. And I think one of the profound things that we see here in this chapter is that Christ invites all of his disciples to it. We don't make these commitments alone. Alan Cady, of course, this is sort of a wonderful illustration in Timothy's life here this morning. I was actually really uh, fascinated by, there was a study that was done recently 
the context of it, do you, any of you happen to know the least attended Sunday of the year? I didn't know this. Uh, that may be, well, that could, I don't know. At least in this study, it was, it was Father's Day. What do you think is the most attended Sunday after Christmas and Easter? Yep, you guys got the pattern there. And so this study was just looking at faith formation and all that. What was really interesting to see is, is um, that they found that for fathers that don't, that don't worship, they don't go to worship, about 1 in 50 kids uh, will end up as a regular worshiper. For fathers that regularly go to worship, that number goes from 1 to 50 to 40 to 50, 40 and 50. It's certainly not a 100% guarantee, and that says nothing about the spiritual state of those people who are worshiping. I get that. But it's interesting to see how that commitment is shared in a family and works across generations. And that for one day when Peter, or excuse me, not when Peter, well, when Peter, but also when Timothy is old enough, and he has this moment to be able to say that he loves the Lord as God with all his heart, with all his strength, with all his mind, that it might seem already second nature and effortless because he's experienced it the whole time from his parents and from us, his community around him. We live out a commitment in this community with each other. That's why, of course, we have the ministry fair this morning. I can give a shout out to that. And maybe the ministry fair seems a little bit too mundane and too simple. Bible studies, I mean, being able to do these things that we do kind of throughout the week here together as being this pointing to the the sign of the eternal Son of God, the one who multiplied the fish and the loaves. I love what Jesus is line is here in this verse. Does this offend you? What if you were to see the man ascend, the son of man ascending to be where he was before? And as Jesus kind of says that here, he's pointing his apostles. He's pointing to us, his disciples, that indeed the words that he gave, it's not just the thing itself. It's not just doing these simple acts. It's that God himself shows up in the most unlikely of places amongst the most unremarkable of people, if you have eyes to see, and his glory will be manifest and his power will be shown as we follow Christ dirty and dusty into the wilderness. So, I'd have you listen to where Christ is calling you this morning. I think one of the gifts that he gives us is a calling to a commitment that helps to strengthen, to grow, and to nurture a really and truly free will within us and purify away those things that have a tendency to enslave us. You're always welcome if you're trying to nurture that calling, that commitment in your life to come and speak to your pastors. And I also encourage you again to check out the ministry fair afterwards and come and celebrate the commitment of Timothy um, to God's life here. So finally this morning, I would just encourage you to come to the table. I just encourage you to come to the table. There are a million other productive things you could be doing right now. I'm sure all of you could name them. And yet you're here right now worshiping, and Christ calls us to do this one unnecessary thing, this one sort of a big word, a gratuitous kind of action in our lives, to receive with thankfulness what he has done with us. So come this morning not because I tell you to, not because you want me to be done speaking, because not based on where you are, but because of who God in Christ is. So will you come to the table in that freedom? Shall we pray together? Lord our God, we're grateful this morning 
to have the gift of you teaching and calling us to new life. Calling us into a true kind of freedom. To be able to do those things that the world wouldn't expect us to do. To live in the kind of mindset, not first thinking of ourselves, but of others, of being able to serve and glorify you. Pray, Lord, that as we come to the table, you prepare our hearts and our minds to receive this gift and to live into that life that as we indeed partake of you, flesh and blood, so our flesh and blood might be indeed your hands and your feet in the world. Pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Well, this...